Now, for most of you in the room, not all of you, some of you may have a fixation with guitars. Stay away. But for the rest of you, you have your one more. You have a next one. And I don't know what it is for you, but if we were to have a conversation, it wouldn't take long to uncover what that one more is. It's that one thing that you're waiting for that you hope that when it arrives in your life, it will satisfy like no other member of the family. It's that one more that when it arrives, happiness will descend upon you. Or so you believe. Now, you may say, you know, if I just could have that beachfront property or the cabin by the lake or since you're college students, you just want a private bathroom. Uh, Or, you know, maybe a Ferrari would work or maybe just a Honda Accord would work or maybe just rust-free transportation would work for some. But my guess is that what's sitting on your stand, what's sitting on your stand are some simple things that you believe, if I just had the one more. You know, if I could just get the boyfriend or the girlfriend or if I could get that ring by spring... Hey, congratulations to all those who got the ring by spring by getting it over the holidays. You know, if I could get an A in Dr. Bedford's class and bring that GPA up, that would help. And you've got a list. And... We live in a society that makes appeal after appeal to arouse our desire. We have an advertisement industry spending mega millions to convince you that you're not happy without their toothbrush, their product. And now today in this room standing as a tower of protection around us and convincing us of a different alternative truth is a passage found in our book of Philippians. And I want to go back to Philippians just this one more time for us as a campus. Our theme is to live as Christ, and we studied in chapter 1 of Philippians that Paul evaluates his circumstances not based on how they impact him, but what they do with Christ. What his circumstances move and, and promote Christ. We saw in chapter 2 that Christ is the example of how our social relationships should happen. And, and there needs to be humility that we, like Christ, should move down and down and down and down in humility. We saw in chapter 3 how Paul talks about all of his accomplishments and says that all of those accomplishments will not get him entrance into heaven, but rather his faith in Christ. And so he could say, I want to know Christ more than all of these other things. I count them as rubbish. And now in chapter 4, as if he cannot get off the theme, Paul writes 
a thank you note to the Philippians. You didn't realize that in the book of Philippians, Paul is on an ice trip. And he has to write a thank you note to those who have supported him in his ice trip. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And together today, I want to just look at a few verses. Verse 10, Philippians 4. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. He's said that now several times in the letter as if to convince us years later that you really can be in a Roman prison and have joy. I rejoice greatly, he says, in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Paul's in the slammer. And in the Roman slammer, you don't have access. They don't supply anything to you. They don't supply toiletries or food or clothing. Everything that you need comes from outsiders who support your work and who you are and what you're about. And Paul's in the slammer, and around the corner comes Epaphroditus from Philippi with a gift in tow, and supplies what is needed to the Apostle Paul. And Paul realizes before he closes the letter, I had certainly better say thank you to them for supplying what I need. And so he says, wow, I was bursting with exuberance when I saw Epaphroditus come around the corner with your gift. He says, at last you've renewed your concern for me. Now that line may be misunderstood by the Philippians, like, hey, wait, what are you talking about? We've always been concerned. Paul says, oh, he lets him off the hook. He says, look, indeed you have been concerned. I realize that. But you had no opportunity to show it. Maybe in Philippi, they didn't know where Paul was. Paul was traveling about and they weren't sure where to send the gift. Or maybe they weren't sure if they were allowed to visit him in Rome in prison. And so they withdrew their opportunity. Or maybe they didn't have a willing person, a messenger, to take the gift. For whatever reason, we just know they didn't have an opportunity for a season. Now they have an opportunity, and their opportunity is matched with their concern, and there they send Epaphroditus with the gift to the Apostle Paul. And They were generous, and as the Apostle Paul receives it, I'm sure he's thinking that this is more than just a gift to me to meet my needs. This is an indication that they have indeed continued in the faith. Their generosity was assigned to the Apostle Paul that years later after the start of the church, these folks are continuing in the faith. And Paul actually boasts about the Philippians to the church in Corinth about their generosity and how they excelled in the grace of giving. And then as if to let them off a hook a second time, verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. You can imagine the Philippians hearing this letter for the first time. It's unfortunate that we know the next verses, but if you're hearing it for the first time and you hear the words, hey, by the way, you renewed your concern for me, now you have opportunity, and and you might think as a listener in Philippi, oh my, Paul's in need, we better send more. Who is this Paul? Why is he always asking for money? What kind of person is this, right? So he lets him off a hook again and says, by the way, I'm I'm not saying that. Because I'm in need. Verse 11, I, I'm not saying it because I'm in need. For I have 
learn to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content no matter how many guitars I have. Do you need one more? Contentment. Content. If you look up the original language here, it's a rather vivid word, content. The root word has this in mind. If you want to go there in a mental um, field trip with me to a lush green hillside, imagine yourself laying on your back on the hillside and all around the valley you just see the hills with the green grass and you spread your hands out and you just run your fingers through the grass and the grass goes between your, your fingers and it's warm and it's soft and it's soothing and as you look the, the contrast of the green grass is met with the blue skies and there's some trees that supply some color and on those hillside are some animals that roam around and they are nurtured by that green grass and in fact, they are satisfied because of that green grass. And that is the word picture for the word contentment in the original language. It was a prairie of grass that supplied the needs of animals. That's not how they applied it in the first century. That's what the image is. The way they applied it was for a city or a country that had was self-contained and had all of her needs met within her city walls. No imports. A lot of communities had all of their farmland outside of the city walls. They needed to go to the exterior to find what they needed, but not those cities that were content. Everything they needed, their water supply, food supply, were all inside Nothing exterior. Because of that, the Stoics in Paul's day used the word contentment as the highest virtue. And they would practice contentment, saying things like, doing things like this. They would sit and they would quiet their souls because everything they need is inside, nothing external to satisfy them, and they'd have someone pinch them. And they would not react to the pinching. Now, my son is in middle school, and so they go around and they act like they punch each other. And if you blink or react to the you know, attempt, then they get a free punch in the arm, right? Well, that's just maybe the old version of that. You'd sit, they'd pinch you, and you couldn't react. And once you could master that, they would move up to a slap, and they'd continue this to the point where you would then, of course, almost be knocked out, but you were content. <laughs> Paul's borrowing that word and redefining that word here. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Again, you're an, you know, the original listener to this letter, and you go, he's learned this, to be content. Oh, my. Huh. I'm interested in that. Maybe he could save me from the one more syndrome. Then Paul expands on this in a kind of rhythmic couplets in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. That particular word, to be in need, 
is the word humble. We've encountered it in chapter 2, verse 8, in reference to Christ. It's the same root word. Christ humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. Paul says, I've, I've experienced that. We know that, don't we? Apostle Paul tells us about his sufferings that he experienced 40 lashes minus one five times. Shipwrecked, day and a half out in sea. He was hungry. He was stoned, left for dead. At one point to the Corinthian church, he says that he is the refuse of the earth. Paul's at the bottom. He's experienced the bottom. And at the bottom, he says, I know there's contentment there. He also goes on and says, I know what it is to have plenty. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time telling about his bountiful seasons of his life, but he has plenty. We do know this. We do know that at, on Damascus Road, he experienced Christ and Christ's glory. That must have been marvelous moment. We also know that Paul was caught up into the third heaven and experienced the paradise of God. That must have been quite a moment. So whether abounding in a lot or in humility, Paul knows contentment. Last week I came across this writing from Brene Brown, a professor at the University of Houston. I don't know her outside of this writing. Someone gave this to me, but listen. It's a little long, but I think you can track with it pretty well. It says this. For many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. You're saying, yep, yep, know that. The next thought is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of our hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, and worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already behind. We're already losing. We're already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get, what we didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack, this internal condition of scarcity. This mindset of scarcity lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, our arguments with life, end quote. And you say, scarcity? A mindset of scarcity? I'm a college student. It's not a mindset. It's a lifestyle. (laughs) Yeah, but it is also an internal condition. John Maxwell calls it the destination disease. I want to go somewhere else. I want to be someone else. I want to know something else. I want to have something else. Say, well, maybe if it's not 
scarcity. Maybe, maybe if I have more, that will be the solution. I don't know. I mean, we have enough wealthy people that address this issue. John Mayer, the voice of existential uh, despair for this generation, multi-Grammy winner, multi-platinum, worth over $40 million, says in his song, something's missing, and I don't know what it is. How about Jim Carrey, the movie actor? He's worth $150 million. If money could buy you love, he'd have it. Here's what he says. I really wish that people in America would be able to get everything they want. Me too. Because if Americans could get everything they really want, they would come to discover that those things are not the real answers. Pretty wise words. So by the time we get to the end of verse 12, Paul has said, I've learned the secret. Secret? Wait a minute, it's a secret? <laughs> if I heard that, I'd be like, well, Paul, you're a horrible secret keeper. Because you're putting it in the book that's most read and throughout history. But he says, it's a secret that I'm going to make known to you. And, and if you're reading this and listening to this, you go, well, then don't keep me in suspense. Tell me the secret, right? Tell me what it is so that contentment can be mine and I can escape the next thing. Approach to life. Verse 13. You know verse 13. It's one of the most quoted verses in all of the Bible. It's taped on the ceiling of weight rooms All across the country. Needlepoint, calligraphy, you name it. We know this verse. Verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything. I can do it. I've got strength from Christ so that if, in fact, I come across a vehicle that's turned over on the side of the road and in flames, I can quote this verse, get my hulk on, and flip the car over, right? I had a friend who actually quoted that verse when he rescued, literally, rescued someone out of a car by Lake Waconia when I was a student. Wow, how do you do it? What do you mean, how do I do it? Don't you know Philippians 4.13? Oh, I guess not. <laughs> so let's be clear about it. This verse, like every verse, is governed by the context. This verse does not mean that you can play piano without rehearsing. Right, Professor Brath? This does not mean that you can stay up all night and be an alert student in the morning because you quote this verse. This does not mean you can ignore your study guides and get an A in the exam because of this verse. It doesn't mean that. Here's what it means. Let me put it in context. 
Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do need. I can do plenty. I can do well-fed. I can do hungry. I can do living in plenty, and I can do living in want through him who gives me strength. I can have contentment by God's divine enabling in any and every situation. Regardless of how many guitars I have or whatever your next one is. I suppose that this promise applies to all our circumstances. That's what Paul seems to be saying. So for you today, rocky marriage, friendship that's soured, financial strain, family crisis, in grief, in disappointment, in institutional transition, in work, in unemployment. We can do all of those situations through Christ in contentment. That the Christ that was available to the Apostle Paul in Rome is indeed available today here with us. Now my challenge is that I sin. That I sin with the sin of unbelief. That I don't believe the verse later in the chapter that says this, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What happens when I need one more guitar or one more whatever it is is that I've ceased to believe the truth that God will provide for me and that God is my contentment, that it is found in Christ and Him only. And I'm looking to all of the other stuff to provide me something that only Christ can give me. Here's what I know is true for all of us in the room. Wealth discriminates. Some people have a knack. I know some people like this. They have a knack for making lots and lots and lots of money. And they have multiple homes and they fly between the homes. I know people like that. Not all of us in this room will experience that. But I am confident of this, that all of us in this room will experience the trials of life that come. That there will be moments of need, moments of pain and ache, moments of sorrow, moments of question and confusion. And the contentment clause of Philippians 4.13 still applies in all of those situations. Will you bow with me?
God, you're good. So, so good. That our deepest need, our greatest longing, is met in the treasure that is Jesus Christ. And because of that, that treasure cannot be touched by rust or stolen by thieves. And it can't be taken from us. And therefore, it is an eternal, deep satisfaction. God, I would pray that I would know that satisfaction day after day. And that my friends here at Crown would as well. That we would stop the search for one more. That indeed we would be joyful in moments of blessing. But we would also know deep contentment when those blessings seem far from our lives. And it is just one more expression to the world when we are content that truly to live as Christ and to die as gain. Help us now to walk in that fulfillment of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Energize our lives that we might indeed be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and be satisfied in Him. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Well, you're welcome to come take some family photos. Get your picture taken with my family as you go. God bless you.